Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, former Major League pitcher Chris Carpenter remembers his former teammate and close friend, Roy Halladay. He was one of those guys that uh, when he walked into the room, people looked at him and, and could definitely tell that, uh, you know, his presence was there. And, and it was just an amazing transition and, and transformation to, to set him up to be just a, an unbelievable pitcher for the next decade. Plus, author John Shea discusses the incredible legacy of one of the greatest baseball players of all time, Willie Mays. This is a teenager right after his graduation and got assigned to an all-white league playing in the Class B Interstate League and couldn't stay with his teammates, couldn't eat with his teammates in a lot of the towns and told me in a moment that I just will never forget, he said, I wondered if it was all worth it. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to the co-author of a new memoir by Willie Mays. We won't be speaking to Willie Mays. We'll be speaking to his co-author, John Shea, about the new book he's written with Mays, 24. But before that, we're going to be talking about another baseball Hall of Famer. Friday night on E60 on ESPN, a new show premiered, Imperfect, the Roy Halladay story, reported by my colleague, and friend and frequent guest here on The Sporting Life, John Barr. And John is going to join us now to talk about Roy Halladay and the reporting for this extraordinary show. John, thank you for being with us. Happy to be here, Jeremy. Thank you. John, you know, Roy Halladay was one of those players in baseball history um, who who was bigger than just his numbers um, in kind of the way that Willie Mays was, too. There was this um, aura about him. Uh, he was um, he was tough. He was um, he was somebody who seemed to represent all of the competitive traits you would want in a top level professional athlete. But who was he as a man? Well, that's that's really the. The central theme of our story. There were two Roy Hallidays. There was the Halliday. There were there was the Roy Halliday that was projected to the world. This stoic workhorse who, whose you know work ethic was the stuff of legend in baseball circles. Uh, and then there was the Roy Halliday away from the baseball field. And you know much of our story is driven by uh, a candid and a far-reaching interview with Brandy Halliday, Roy's widow, and she shared with us in detail. Uh, how Roy struggled with pain and addiction. He had two separate stints in inpatient drug treatment. And she also shared with us how he struggled with mental health issues. He struggled with depression and anxiety, attention deficit disorder. Um, and this is something that, that, you know, some of those issues trace back to Roy's childhood, his, his early struggles as a professional athlete. Uh, but they continued to, to he, it's something he continued to, to battle right up until the time of, of his death in November of 2017. So um, that's really the guts of what this story is about. It's it's the Roy Halliday we never knew. As you put it in the show, and again, it's imperfect, the Roy Halliday story, 
um, which premiered Friday night. You say that when he comes, um, when he gets back to the majors in 2001, after having been down in the minors, after kind of a disastrous start to his major league career in 98, 99, and 2000, he's, he's a different person. Uh, refresh our memory. Who who was Roy Halladay in those first few years as major leaguer? What kind of pitcher was he? Well, he caught lightning in a bottle in his second start. He was one eight one out removed from a no-hitter in his second start as a Toronto Blue Jay. But he, in the year 2000, as you referenced, he had an absolutely disastrous year. His 10.64 ERA over the course of the 2000 season remains the highest ERA in Major League Baseball history for any pitcher with at least 50 innings. So think about that for a moment. This is a guy who carved out a Hall of Fame career. From 2002 to 2011, he was amazing. You know, he led the major leagues in uh, wins, in uh, complete games, in shutouts. But during that 2000 season, he was just awful. And the Jays, frankly, didn't know what to do with him. I mean, the guy was a first-round pick. uh, So they sent him all the way down to Class A ball. And that's where Roy had to reinvent himself. From a baseball standpoint, he lowered his arm slot from about... He was too over the top in his delivery, and hitters were just teeing off on his fastball in particular because they were picking the ball up out of his hand too easily. So he lowered his arm slot down to about 2 o'clock, and that added some devastating movement to his fastball. It it would break away from right-handed hitters and go down into the zone, and that was really his bread-and-butter pitch. He he had a number of great pitches, but, but that was his bread and butter. That's what he did from a baseball standpoint, but from a from a psychological standpoint, you know, the story's been oft retold of how Brandy uh, went out one night when Roy was really at an all-time low and picked up a copy of Harvey Dorfman's The Mental ABCs of Pitching, and she credits that book with saving his career and really saving their marriage. I didn't know that. I, I knew Harvey Dorfman well. He was uh, he was an interesting guy who worked with a lot of athletes who were having issues. Uh, I met him doing a story about guys with Steve Blass syndrome, and how I think he had treated Mark Wollers among others. Um, fascinating, fascinating guy. Um, no longer with us. We're speaking with John Barr about his new E60 one-hour special, Imperfect, the Roy Halladay story. And one of the things that struck me, um, Alex Rodriguez is one of the voices in the show. And he calls Halliday in the show, correct me if I'm wrong, John, one of the five best starting pitchers in baseball history. If you were going to name an all-time all-star team, Alex Rodriguez, who knows baseball, would would put Halliday. I mean, maybe that's hyperbole, but that's how, that's how good he was. I mean, and for a full decade, he was, I mean, he was, as Alex puts it, I think in these words, the epitome of a starting pitcher. Yeah, look, I mean, from 2002 to 2011, he had 30 more complete games than his next closest competitor, who, by the way, was CeCe Sabathia. I mean, that's sort of the baseball equivalent of lapping the field. He he was dominant, and, you know, he toiled, unfortunately for him, uh, in, you know, I guess relative obscurity in Toronto. You think about the era, right? Think about the steady diet of Red Sox and Yankees, batters that he had to face, and yet he was still that good. And so it was, it was really um, 
it was a pivotal moment in his career, and it, I know the ho- certainly his hope and the hope of many who supported his career through the years that when he was traded to Philadelphia in late 2009, uh, a team that was coming up back-to-back World Series appearances, that he would finally be able to complete that other gaping hole, the, the gaping hole that existed in his resume at that point, which was no postseason baseball. He'd never been to the postseason. And, of course, we all know what happened in his very first postseason start. He did something that was just historic. He threw a no-hitter, only the second no-hitter ever in postseason history. That's who Roy Halladay was. How does his career start winding down early in the second decade of the 21st century? Yeah, so he you know, he was dominant in 2010, had an, uh, an impressive year as well by any measure in 2011, uh, unfortunately, never did reach the World Series as as he had hoped to after that trade to, to Philadelphia. Uh, but that's really where it ended. Uh, Brandy talked about that uh, game. It was the uh, decisive game against the St. Louis Cardinals in the National League Division Series in 2011, where he was outdueled by his good friend and former teammate with the Blue Jays, Chris Carpenter. Um, in a one nothing game, Roy only gave up one run through 126 pitches that night, but Carpenter got the better of him. He, he pitched a complete game shutout. It was in that game, Brandy says, that he felt his back pop. And when he came home that night, she says, at one point he sneezed and his body lurched forward and he was on all fours and he was in so much pain in his back that he was unable to get up. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't pick himself up. It turns out Roy was suffering from PARS fractures, which are stress fractures in his back. He proceeded then, Jeremy, to pitch the final two seasons, or at least try to pitch the final two seasons of his career as a Philly in 2012 and 2013 with a broken back. Uh, You know, his back injury ultimately led to shoulder issues. He had shoulder surgery. Uh, But the 2012-2013 seasons or when Halliday, his body started to fail him. And and the drop-off was stunning for somebody who had been so good for so long to just suddenly look human. Uh, it was startling to a number of people. And what we now know is starting in the spring of 2012, during that spring training, that is when he first, according to Brandy, first started taking prescription pain pills to manage his pain. So he retires in 2013, shortly after not completing a stint in rehab. Um, His baseball career is over. He's, what, 35, 36 years old. 36. At that point, he's 36 years old, yeah. How did he adapt to retirement? Not well. Not well at all. You know, he, um, you know, again, I, I can't, I think one of the things that will come as a surprise to Philadelphia fans in particular is the fact that, you know, he did start taking prescription pain pills and did struggle with his abuse of those pills. And I don't say abuse in the sense that he was looking to get high. It's just that his body, according to his wife, became chemically dependent on the drugs. He was taking these drugs so he could get out there every fifth day and pitch. And, you know, the Phillies we now know were aware of it. A few a few teammates approached someone with the team in 2013. They had a player who Roy respects talk to him about it in 2013. And but then and then as you mentioned, he went to inpatient treatment after the season completed in 2013, but prior to his retirement press conference. But after he retired, according to his wife, he was just lost. 
he just he only knew baseball. He, he, you know, the natural rhythms of the season. That was all he knew. He didn't know how to self-identify as anything else. Um, and and he struggled. He struggled with pain, and ultimately that pain led to depression, and and another stint in inpatient drug treatment in early 2015, according to Brandy. He grew up flying planes. His father was a corporate pilot. We're speaking to John Barr about Imperfect, the Roy Halladay story. We know, of course, that he died piloting his own plane, but there are a lot of details in the show that most of us are unaware of. Um, he he just bought this. He'd just taken delivery of this plane. I mean, was it five weeks beforehand? Yeah, that's that's correct. Now he he also had been lusting after that plane, if you will, for two years. He uh, he had started. I think his first post about the Icon A five, which is the aircraft we're talking about, was was dating back to 2015, and he was able to go through flight training uh, in California, where the company's headquartered, and in Florida on an Icon A5, not the one he ultimately purchased, but, you know, he, he had more than 51 hours of flying that plane. So he'd been training on it. He'd been training on it. He'd been dreaming about this plane. He loved flying. It's a place where he found some kind of serenity. Um, but he had also been, you established in the film, reckless, dangerous. That's right. And, and, yeah. and that's, that's not even taking into consideration... Um, the levels of drugs that were in his system when he was flying, certainly on that last day. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, his father expressed concerns to National Transportation and Safety Board uh, investigators um, about Roy's behavior as a pilot even before he got the Icon A5 in October 2017. Roy, prior to that, owned two single-propeller Cessnas, and his father said, you know, there were times when Roy would, for example, fly over long distances over water, which, uh, in his father's estimation, Roy was engaging in behavior that perhaps a more experienced pilot wouldn't. And after getting the Icon A5 in October of 2017, Roy kept talking about how sporty it was. It, it, you know, it's this two-seat light sport amphibious aircraft. His father's concern was that it might tempt Roy to, to take chances that he didn't need to take. And we now know from a, a number of witnesses and from NTSB investigators that in the days and weeks preceding November 7th, 2017, Roy was flying recklessly. Some 12 days before the crash that claimed his life, we know he flew under the Tampa Skyway Bridge. You know, it's just not something a responsible pilot does, and it's against FAA regulations. You're just not supposed to do that, but but he did it. Well, it's a compelling show and obviously a tragic story. John Barr, the ESPN reporter, the new E60 is imperfect, the Roy Halliday story. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Earlier in the week, I spoke to Chris Carpenter, the teammate of Roy Halliday's, for five seasons with the Toronto Blue Jays. His good friend at one time and his fellow Cy Young Award winner, he shared his thoughts and his memories of his friend Roy. Chris, how did Roy change when he turned his career around back in 2001? Yeah, you know, it, it definitely was an amazing uh, change in him as a, as a person and as a, as a player. He uh, went through some struggles early in his career, as we both did. And then he, uh, you know, he had that opportunity to go down and, and reinvent himself basically. And, 
And when he came back, you could definitely see that he was a different guy. Uh, he had a different presence in the locker room. He had a different presence to all of us. Um, he was one of those guys that, uh, you know, when you walk, when he walked into the room, um, you know, people looked at him and, and could definitely tell that, uh, you know, his presence was there. And, and it was just an amazing transition and, and transformation to, to set him up to be just a, an unbelievable pitcher for the next decade. You guys are linked in particular by game five of the 2011 National League Division Series. You were both spectacular in that game, which you and the Cardinals won. It was really Roy Halladay's last hurrah. He was injured fairly early the next season, never himself again. When you think about that game in particular and competing against your old friend, Roy Halladay, what comes to mind? Uh, fun. Um, never forget it. It, uh, it was definitely an experience, again, as, as competitors and as professionals. Um, you know, where we sat back in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, trying to figure out who we were as players uh, and who we were as pitchers, and, and then to be able to develop into to what we did. And, and then it all come together in that last, mo- that last game of uh, game five of those, that series. Um, was just a wonderful experience for me, but you also know that you know facing the best pitcher of the time right then was was Doc, and you knew that you were going to go in for a battle, and that's what we both enjoyed was uh, was we enjoyed the pressure, we enjoyed the moment, but we also enjoyed the competition, and and uh, it was a lot of fun to do, uh, not just against him but against that team. Chris, um, of course, Roy would die um, two and a half years ago, plus six years after that game. I know by the time that he died in that plane crash, you two were no longer as close as you had once been. And you hadn't been around him as he struggled after his career with painkillers and depression. But knowing now what happened to him after his baseball career ended, how have you handled that? How have you processed what happened to your friend Roy? Yeah, you know, it definitely is, is something that is weighs heavy on my heart. I think uh, when we both ended our careers, we definitely had our struggles. You know, I, I, I've shared before that with many people that uh, the game teaches you a lot. It teaches you, uh, you know, responsibility. It teaches you how to compete. It teaches you how to to navigate people with all the different people that come into the clubhouse. Um, They also teach you how to, and and make sure and remind you to stay financially secure because you retire at such an er early age, but they don't teach you is how to deal with, uh, you know, going from that everyday structure, that everyday competition. Um, And then once it ends, uh, you have nothing and, and you got to figure out how to kind of reshape your life um, when you've been doing it for the last 20 years. We both struggled. Uh, we both had issues. Um, and unfortunately, and that's something that I wish I could take back, um, you know, from that time until he passed, um, I was dealing with my own stuff, uh, trying to get my own life together. And and as now that we all know, so was, so was Doc. And uh, I just wish I could have some of that time back and, and maybe we could have gone through our things together, work together uh, to try to fix it, to try to help him. And he tried to help me. But, uh, you know, you can't take back what uh, what has happened. Uh, I'm just trying to move forward with uh, loving on who he was, uh, what he brought to this uh, this world and uh, and also hold on to some of the memories that he brought to me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. There are a lot of great players and there are a lot of great athletes in the annals of sport and American sport in particular. But there are only a few you would really call essential. 
who means something beyond the game, who transcends sports. One of those figures, undoubtedly, is Willie Mays. He's now 89 years old. His career came to an end almost a half century ago, but he still looms so large in our collective consciousness. Willie Mays is the co-author of a book that has just been released, co-authored with John Shea, the longtime baseball writer from the Bay Area. The book is titled 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid, and it is a pleasure to welcome to the show John Shea. John, thank you for being with us. Jeremy, my pleasure. Thank you. I was trying to um, articulate, perhaps inelegantly, in that introduction, why Willie Mays is um, is almost um, someone who has the power of myth in our society. That that it, there's still um, this power to the aura of Willie Mays. How how would you put your finger on it? No, you're right. A iconic figure, a cultural icon, American hero, and not just a baseball hero or a sports hero. But a living legend who's with us today and uh, thankfully opened his heart and memory banks and great knack for storytelling to to me. Um, and we were able to put this book together about not just the man, but the career and the exemplary life. You know, a guy who inspired millions, but also details who inspired him. And that is what. We tried to capture in the book. The story of Willie Mays, uh, who was born in 1931, uh, who came up to the major leagues in 1951, uh, did all those spectacular things on a ball field. Um, I think he was on the, in the on deck circle, uh, in his first year when Bobby Thompson hit the shot heard around the world. Of course, the Vic Wirtz catch and the 54 sweep of the Indians. But his is one of those lives that tells us so much about America in the 20th century as well. How do those stories track each other, America and Willie Mays? You're right. This is a, a teenager who played with the Birmingham Black Barons in the Negro Leagues and got signed by the Giants right after his graduation and got assigned to an all-white league, the Trenton Giants, playing in the Class B Interstate League, not only the only African-American on the team, but the entire league. And this is 1950, three years after Jackie broke the color barrier. And Willie is going into some of these towns, hearing the same thing Jackie was hearing, and couldn't stay with his teammates, couldn't eat with his teammates in a lot of the towns, and told me in a moment that I just will never forget, he said, I wondered if it was all worth it. And my God, it gave me chills because, I, what? Not, I mean, no Willie Mays in baseball? He could have gone back to Birmingham and worked in the mines like his father did. And luckily, fortunately for everybody in the, on the planet, basically, he persevered and overcame and wouldn't let the biggest win and was rookie of the year in 51, MVP in 54, and played 22 seasons. And, you know, arguably the best all-around player in the history of the game. And like we said, lived a life that, really wasn't like Mickey Mantle, who went out at night and caroused and drank heavily and had a shortened career because of it. And Willie took a different path through life. We're speaking with John Shea about the new book he has co-authored with Willie Mays, 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid. And this is a book about um, the people who influenced him, as you said, the people that he has influenced as well. Um, 
what what did you know especially in the northeast where i'm from although i come from a family of of brooklynites and dodgers fans i like to think that if i had been alive at the time i would have been a new york giants fan because i grew up in manhattan uh, and of course they played at the polo grounds uh and, and i'm a contrarian anyway but um his relationship with leo derocher what did that mean to his development as a player and as a man it meant everything if he had a different manager Willie got might have gotten lost. I mean, he's a kid. He's 20. I mean, Jackie broke in in his late 20s. Willie just turned 20 in May of 1951 when he got called up. So, yeah, he was expecting to play the entire season in uh, Minneapolis, where he was hitting 477 through late May. And the fans were loving it. It was an integrated team, an integrated league. It was so much different than the year before. But Leo calls him up and said, we need you because we're scuffling. They were 17 and 19 when Willie got called up, and Willie just as soon would stay there. But, uh, you know, obviously Willie went through the struggles. He was 1 for 12, uh, or 0 for 12, 1 for 25, the only hit off Warren Spahn at the polo grounds over the roof and left. <laughs> and he was at his locker crying and said, Leo, this is too fast for me, man. And he's telling me this. It's, like, it's unbelievable. And Leo said, listen, man, you're not here to hit. You're here to do everything you're doing in the outfield that, help our pitchers, help our team win. And from there, he started going off and won Rookie of the Year. and Just a, a, a guy you just couldn't take your eyes off of, unlike, say, Bonds, Barry Bonds and these guys. You couldn't take your eye off him at the plate. But Willie, you couldn't take your eye off him in the field with the basket catches. And he told me, I used to make the hard plays look easy and the easy plays look hard. But Leo was instrumental, as was Monty Irvin, his first roommate with the Giants, uh, the Negro League legend who's in the Hall of Fame, played many years with the Giants as well, and could have been Jackie before Jackie. He was uh, deemed by many in the Negro Leagues to break the color barrier, but he went into the military and came back and had some issues, and and, uh, Branch Rickey went with Jackie, and all was well with the world. But, yeah, Leo was somebody that he really uh, definitely missed when Leo went away because uh, while the Dodgers had Walter Austin throughout his whole career, the Giants trotted out different managers after different managers, and no one measured up to Leo. We're speaking with John Shea again about his new book, 24, co-written with Willie Mays. And, of course, over the course of his career, the next couple of decades after coming up in 51, Willie Mays would fashion one of the greatest careers in baseball. 660 home runs, more almost 3,300 hits, um, more than 300 stolen bases, a couple of MVP awards, right? Um, 250 home run seasons, all of the spectacular things that he did. But as as we've said, he was he was more than that. There are great players whose numbers are not that much different. You know, um, you could throw out a Jimmy Fox or something like that. But Willie Mays is one of those guys, and there are only a few, and it's like Babe Ruth. Satchel Page, Willie Mays, I guess you could say Yogi Berra, Mantle and DiMaggio, um, who, who are icons. And maybe that word, you know, that, that, that word fits in this case. Why does he represent to so many people the joy of baseball? Well, that's exactly it. The joy of baseball. You described it to a T. Willie Mays enjoyed what he did. He brought that youthful exuberance to the field and you see guys celebrating today and they hit a home run and you know, they, they celebrate as they do. But back then it was like he was celebrating during the play. I mean, he had the smile and the basket catch and the cap flying off intentionally. 
just to entertain guys in the crowd so that those people could come back the next day. And Willie has a record that will never be broken. 13 straight years, 150-plus games played. And that streak went back to the 154-game season and into the 60s. So he was in the lineup every day. He didn't want to come out. And you talk about the modern analytics. You know, I spoke with Bill James and Tom Tango and Rob Nyer and, you know, all all these cutting-edge analytic folks, the historians, the writers, all these great minds. And they went back to his career. And you're right, Willie won two MVPs. But through the lens of today's analytics and advanced data, he could have won, in my mind, listening to all this information, between eight and 11 MVPs because he was up there every single season. We talk about a 10-war season being a fabulous season. Well, it's been accomplished like nine times since 2000 by hitters. Bonds did it three times. Trout did it three times. Well, Mays averaged a 10-war season over seven-year stretch. So that's how good he was consistently. Bill James said, said in the back of the book, he says, Willie Mays' best season is every year. Just pick one. They're all great. When I, 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 as I said, I live in the New York area, and when I drive um, through Riverdale in the Bronx and you pass a certain building in the Bronx where it seems everybody knows Willie Mays, I think he might still have an apartment uh, 50 plus years after the Giants left New York. I, I always think of Willie Mays. Um, I guess that's just an example. I'm just trying to say that like, he's just always there. We're always thinking about him, even though it's been like a half century since he last played. I haven't seen him in person. I think I only did maybe that one time. The first interleague game in 1997, I think it was in Texas. He was the National League captain. Nolan Ryan was the American League captain. It was um, at the ballpark in Arlington. And he was charming. And he was funny. And he, he just did a great press conference. Um, but sometimes he had a reputation for being difficult. And, and you know, uh, you, you've been around him for a long time. How did he, how does he respond to the adulation, uh, which which is still there when people bring up the name Willie Mays? Well, everything you see in the Last Dance by Michael Jordan that that was pretty much Willie in the fifties and sixties. He couldn't really go out; he'd be mobbed. Sometimes his teammates would smuggle him away to back room at a restaurant, and he was hounded more than anybody. The Giants had the best road attendance in the National League in the 60s. They didn't draw great a candlestick like they did at Dodger Stadium, but eight out of the 10 years in the 60s, the Giants led the league in road attendance. And as Felipe Alou told me, you know, they had Cepeda, they had McCovey, they had Marshall, and all these great players, Gaylord Perry. But Felipe said, every time we went into a, a town, you'd see the paper, Willie Mays and company. And and, and these are fabulous ballplayers. But Alou said we knew who, who the draw was, despite all the talent we had on those teams. And they only went to one World Series, but they had the best record in the league in the 60s. And Marichal had the most wins. It was, a, it was a great time for baseball. They finished second every year. But, it, yeah, Mays, Mays was a draw and beloved. And he wasn't booed at Ebbets Field. He wasn't booed at Dodger Stadium. When he got called into the military in late May of 1952 for the Korean War, everyone knew it. So his last out late in the game at Ebbets Field, he walked off to a standing ovation. (laughs) And no giant does that. 
except for me. John, what's it like uh, as a baseball man just getting to spend time with Willie Mays? That's a great question. Uh, Willie came back to the organization in 1986, and I covered started covering the Giants in 1988. I mostly he was always in the clubhouse, unlike a lot of Hall of Famers. You know, he's got a lifetime contract signed in 1993 by Peter McGowan. But even before that, he was a constant in the clubhouse, unless he went away for business. And even now, throughout this past month in March and spring training, he was in the home clubhouse before every home game every day. And that's just his thing. I mean, he's he's bummed about this virus because he's sheltering and he's 89. He'd love to be at the park. But I got to know Willie and he trusted me. And uh, what a wonderful thing to say, by the way. And uh, we spoke, what, 15 years ago about a possible book project. And he said, I would like to see this in classrooms. And so from there, we kind of took an inspirationally themed course. And we did the math and spent more than 100 hours together for this project. And I interviewed more than 200 people for this project. Wow. And that's a lot of interviews. You're right. And you know what else? Every single time, I, I, you know, in, in my day job at the San Francisco Chronicle, if I leave 10 messages, I hope to bat 500. <laughs> hope, hopefully five of them will read. Well, if you drop Willie's name and it's for a book, I'm hitting about a thousand. <laughs> Everybody called I me. Mean, I interviewed President Clinton, President Bush. There's a whole chapter on Obama, uh, Hank Aaron, all these legends, 30-plus uh, Hall of Famers, um, Negro League teammates. I went back to Birmingham and spent a week to check out his roots and speak with his childhood buddies and old teammates, and that was wonderful. So the whole experience, Jeremy, was was uh, unbelievable and just allowed me to tell history maybe that hasn't been told because this book, unlike maybe other May's books, has nothing from old newspapers and old magazines and other books, no quotes. In, the, in other words, if, if there was a quote ever said about Willie, it was off limits to this book. It's all new, exclusive, uh, fresh information. And same with the photographs, almost 100 photographs, and uh, most, most of them have never been seen. Even the biggest Willie Mays fan won't recognize 90% of them. We're speaking with John Shea about his new book with Willie Mays, 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the say hey kid and, and as as we've been talking about willie mays is about much more than the numbers and the analytics uh which was a term that didn't exist obviously <laughs> when he was playing at least applied to sports and baseball but i think i was only in candlestick park once um yeah, i think it was i was doing something about Greg Maddox. They happened to be there. And, and it was literally one of those days where you couldn't believe they played baseball at that place. <laughs> it was so windy. The conditions were so ri- almost indescribably ridiculous. Um, well, what do we think the numbers might look like? Not only if it wasn't Candlestick Park, but the Polo Grounds was no joyride for right-handed hitters. You're right. It goes from the Polo Grounds, which nobody could hit a home run to center field, 483 to dead center. And a couple of years at the Seal Stadium. And then Candlestick Park, the worst place in the world to build a ballpark. And right on the San Francisco <laughs> Bay, always windy. And here's Mays coming out. And by the, first, by the way, the first year, the, the fences were way the heck out there. They had to move them in just to conform with the rest of the league. And during BP, Mays would crush the ball, and the wind would knock it down. He crushed the ball. The wind would knock it down. He said if you hit a fly ball and left, there's zero chance it would go out. It had to be a line drive. But he didn't complain about it. He adjusted and learned to go to all fields. And there was a jet stream out in right center. If you get it up in the air, oftentimes it would go out. But 
I look back, and he actually hit more home runs at home than on the road during his candlestick years. A lot of people say, oh, he would have hit a lot more home runs. But he adjusted and made it benefit him. A lot of people complained about the stick. Interesting. But he just adapted to it. I think the bigger question is what would have happened if he didn't go in the military? And, again, he didn't complain about it. He did his service. He did his time. But that's two years missed in his early 20s. He came out of the military, hit 92 home runs his first two seasons in 54 and 55. So conservatively, if you say, well, in those two seasons he might have hit 60, well, he finished with 660, he had 60, and that's six more than Babe Ruth, 714. So, again, he never complains about it. I asked him many times. He said, John, what's wrong with 660? And I said, yeah, you're right. Does, does you know, in, in New York anyway, you know, people still remember the 73 World Series when um, he was no longer himself, could no longer do the things he had once done. And it's kind of one of these, like, standard um stories now when you talk about an athlete hanging on too long you think of willie mays but but is that world series really representative of who he was by 1973 and does it really um influence the way people think of him as a player later in his career you're right people will look at that and use the example don't be willie mays don't play too long get out of the game before it's too late and all that stuff. And I, I said, okay, let me look into that. So I looked into that World Series, talked to a bunch of people on both sides of the ball, Reggie Jackson, Raleigh Fingers, uh, you know, Vida, uh, all the folks, Fossey, and all the Mets teammates as well. And I came away from that a little different vibe. Now, the pictures we remember are Willie losing the ball in the sun and Willie on his knees at the plate arguing with Augie Donatelli. Well, the reason he was at the plate arguing, it wasn't because he dropped the ball or struck out. He was arguing for a teammate on a close play at the plate that went the A's way and the Mets should have, should have you know, because he was on deck and he was the first one to the scene arguing. But the ball in the sun, he's yeah, he's 43. And Reggie Jackson was the center fielder on the A's that night, that day in Oakland. It was actually He was playing inning. center, Reggie. Reggie Jackson was in center, yeah. Wow. But he said the sun was absolutely brutal that day, that nobody could have caught it. And I went back and looked at the entire game, and it seemed every pop-up and every slide ball was an adventure because the sun was just ridiculous. It was in the, it was, it was, it was in the shadows, uh, and, and hard, some of it was in the sun. And anyway, there are no excuses. Willie never made any excuse. But I'm looking back, and I see, well, at, talking to people, it's like a different – it, 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 it's kind of different when I look back and, and do the research on this and talk to people at the time. But it's kind of the stereotype. You say, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done that. Well, Willie came back thinking, well, I'll just finish the 72 season. Remember in 71, he was a three-hitter on a Giants team that won the division. At age 40, he hit 18 home runs. He stole 23 out of 26 bases. He led the league in walks and on base percentage. And the following May, Horace Stoneham uh, uh, trades him to the Mets because he couldn't afford the $165,000 contract that Willie was making. So Joan, Joan Payson, who had partial ownership of the New York Giants and now full ownership of the New York Mets, wanted Willie back. So they agreed, you know, finish out the 72 season. Well, she kind of talked him into one more season. And that was Willie's worst because he was on the DL for the first time in his career. It, it was the knee. It was the shoulder. It was the, the ribs. And he hardly played at all in September. And then Yogi Berra puts him in to start game one of the World Series because Rusty Staub had a bad shoulder. He got a hit. The Mets lost the game. But anyway, game two is what everyone looks at. And nobody remembers, though, that he got the game-winning hit 
and the Mets won in 12 innings. So uh, looking a little deeper, you see a little different story. That's usually what happens. It's uh, it's great stuff. It's been great talking to you, John. John Shea, the co-author of the new book with Willie Mays, 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Icon, the Legend, the Say Hey Kid. John, thank you so much for sharing your stories. Jeremy, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.